Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode 13 of the podcast. Today, I'll be talking about the strange phenomenon of how secular sci-fi is doing a much better job at telling deep transcendent stories these days than the genre that it should be the best at, that should be the best at it. Fantasy. In the process, we'll be talking about the strange and sometimes excellent homecoming series of Orson Scott Card. We might talk a little bit about the initial horribleness of the latest Disney Plus cash grab, also known as Obi-Wan Kenobi, and the strangest show out there these days, Raised by Wolves. Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me daily and keep me creating. If you'd like to support this show, you can. You can join for $2 a month and get access to early live-streamed recordings, which include exclusive Q&A sessions afterwards. The community also has higher tiers that include things like free ebooks for life, merch, and exclusive experimental short fiction written by yours truly. Visit patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar to find out more. And if you do enjoy this podcast, I'd be very grateful if you left a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It does help other people discover this podcast, especially in its early stages of existence. Thank you to those who have already done so. And now, on to today's show. I've been having a bit of a reading slump lately, and for a long time I couldn't figure out what was going on. Overwork, trying to do too much in too little time, expecting too much of my own writing. I don't know what it was, but I will tell you that it's been a surprising Uh, series of stories that have got me thinking about what is it about transcendent storytelling that makes it work? Meaning not just stories that are there to entertain us or to say something perhaps profound about the human condition, perhaps not, but I'm talking about the stories that go a little bit further, the stories that really talk about what it means to be human, that talk about the difficult questions of communion interaction with the divine, that talk about the the making of meaning or the extraction of meaning in a universe that seems sometimes to offer an abundance and sometimes to do nothing at all. But it's really difficult to, to do this in a storytelling setting. I talk a lot about how fairy tales and fantasy are the genres most suited to tell difficult truths about the human condition nowadays especially. But that doesn't mean that all fantasy fiction or media do it well. There's a really great example of this. Recently, I completely uh, accidentally started to read, and by read I mean listen uh, on audiobook, 
again, I don't see any difference between listening to a book and reading it. Um, it's not, not the same experience, certainly, but I'm not someone to suggest that listening to an audiobook is somehow less valid than reading a book in physical book form. They are different experiences, though. That is certainly true. Still, be that as it may, I happened to upon one of Orson Scott Card's earlier series that I hadn't really heard about before. It's called the Homecoming series. And the reason that I haven't heard about it, I think, is because it's a thinly veiled allegory or a fictionalization of the Book of Mormon. Now, when I found that out, after I had already bought the audiobook of the first book, I almost put the whole thing down. Because if something is explicitly marketed, or at least mentioned in reviews as being a fictionalization of a scriptural text, my immediate, immediately, I, you know, my hackles are raised, and I think, oh great, I'm going to get preached at. And the thing is, I have been, I have had similar experiences with other Mormon writers, in particular Jeff Wheeler, in his um, uh, one of his first series, the Mirwood series. There's an extended uh, world-building scene, which is effectively an info dump in one of the early novels, that makes it very clear that this author is using his, Jeff Wheeler, that it's using his fiction as a, as a sort of thinly veiled uh, excuse to tell stories that are really uh, trying to not merely entertain, at least in the Mirwood series, but really bring forward a certain kind of um, religious viewpoint and trying to be a proponent of it. Okay, so the reason I'm being careful about this is because being a, a uh, faithful Christian myself, and being an author that writes in the, or writes for reasons of inspiration, meaning I write because I have been inspired by writers such as J.R.R. Tolkien and, of all people, Fyodor Dostoevsky, both of whom are writing adventure or genre fiction, but both of whom, through the medium of that, are not telling, are not uh, preaching at the reader, but are still saying something very important about the world through the lens of their own religious belief. And neither one of them preaches, right? I've always tried, as a writer who is inspired by these writers, I've often been inspired by ideas meaning the germ of a story is often an idea that comes for me from some reality that is um, related to my experience of the transcendent in my everyday life. Sometimes it's theological explicitly, and I'm not even sure if I should be saying this out loud or not, but the genesis of the Raven Sun series was certainly one that did not start exclusively in the uh, fantasy realm. It started out as a religious allegory. It quickly became something very different. It started to write itself, and in the in the um, in the present version of it, or rather in the published version of it, I should say, there is no religious allegory at all. It's a fantasy story. Yes, it's talking about some things in allegorical language, or rather in metaphorical language, I should say. Um, some things that have to do with the experience of the transcendent and the mundane. But they're not religious books, certainly not. And having written those books, having come across this very real problem of how do you talk about 
your own experience of the transcendent in everyday life in a way that won't feel preachy to people who have their hackles raised, to have people who have, most people have their antenna raised and will react very negatively as soon as they think that you are preaching to them. How do you do that? And reading these stories by Orson Scott Card, it struck me that it really is a difficult thing. Now, his fictionalization of the Book of Mormon is not simply mining scriptures for good stories. I haven't heard him talk about it. I've, lo- I've looked for interviews with him on this series. I haven't been able to find anything. And it's a little bit frustrating because personally, I'm wondering whether or not Orson Scott Card wrote this as a kind of fictional entry point to what he would hope eventually might be people reading the Book of Mormon itself. I don't know if that's what he was doing or whether he was simply taking the good story parts from the Book of Mormon and making them into a separate story completely with no reference to the original. I don't know. But in any case... The, he does deal with the question of what do you do when you are called by God? And he does it in a, interestingly, not in a fantasy setting, but in a sci-fi setting that has become fanta- fantasy-like in its expression because this is 40 million years in the future. And on a world called Harmony that has uh, limited its access to technology to such a degree that although there are some very advanced le- uh, versions of technology, people are still walking around in sandals, um, relating to each other much as they would in a medieval town, with a lot of the language and a lot of the customs, a lot of the external manifestations, the world building itself, feeling a lot more like fantasy than sci-fi. But the bones of the story are sci-fi in the sense that Orson Scott Card, in his um, in the way he explains the difference between the two genres, he's very clear that if you're going to write science fiction and you want to talk about transcendent realities, you cannot include the actual real presence of the divine in your story. He says it's completely impossible. And we get this in a, in a guide that he wrote for writers who want to write in the genres of fantasy and science fiction. So he makes it very explicit that no gods, angels, demons, um, goblins, anything like that should ever appear in sci-fi. Now, of course, rules are made to be broken and there's plenty of, uh, you'll find plenty of examples of the two genres being mixed together but he as somebody who wrote that advice does try to follow it and the way he does it is very interesting so since you can't have god but he's trying to tell a religious story in a science fiction setting he makes god into a computer to a computer that has actual ability to control the minds of the people of the planet harmony as we find out later, this was a, a technological innovation made by humanity itself to prevent itself from ever making nuclear weapons and destroying Earth, which is what they did 40 million years before. That setup has all kinds of problems, because if God is a computer that was created by man, and you as a character are being called by this God, who is a computer, and you know that it is a computer, or at least you suspect it is, why on, why on Earth would you follow its dictates, the computer's dictates, as though it were divine? This is a question that is never really raised. Well, it is somewhat by some of the negative characters, but it's never sufficiently answered. Probably because, now I haven't finished the series, I've only read the first four books out of the five book series, but that the, the question for myself has never been fully resolved. So the problem of this, of telling a story about the calling of a prophet-like figure who's going to become a, a somebody who leads the complacent out of 
their uh, decadent lifestyle and lead them into the promised land. Again, in a storytelling um, setting. How do you do that? How do you do that effectively? If the character is being called by a computer. And this becomes particularly evident and particularly problematic at a certain very important point when the computer, who is acting like God, tells the main character, Nephi, that he must kill the primary villain of the piece in book one for the good of his mission. Nephi is disgusted by the idea because the villain in the piece at that particular moment is incapacitated in front of him. He's been having a, an evening of drinking. He's completely passed out in front of him, lying on the, on the dirt of the streets, completely at Nephi's mercy. And it's at that moment that the computer who was playing God tells him, chop his head off. Spoiler alert, he does it. It's actually a very um, well-written scene. The intensity of this decision that the character has to make is one that is very resonant with me, and I think with a lot of readers, in that, what do you do? The question it raises, what do you do if your God tells you to do something that you personally feel to be absolutely abhorrent for something that your God says is going to be for the benefit of yourself and the rest of humanity in the future. The kinds of things that you find a lot in the Old Testament, um, not so much in the New, of course. It was it didn't work, right? So it, it, it was very difficult to do because consistently the question keeps coming up. Why are you listening to a computer? Even though the author seems to suggest that perhaps the computer is being led by another force and that force is something that transcends the laws of of matter. Information from it can be sent in the blink of an eye. It doesn't have to follow the um, the uh, speed of light, which perhaps could be the actual God. Up until the end of book four, we don't actually encounter this force. We only get hints of it. And throughout the rest of the story, as the, the figure who was called by the computer God goes out and takes his chosen nation out into the wilderness and they begin to... Um, create a new people for the, that's going to be the glorious future of humanity. It's still never answered. It's still you still have that nagging sense of how is this anything but manipulation by a force that was created by man for the for purposes that cannot be transcendent? Because how can a computer that was created by man give directions to man about what is important and transcendent and transcends itself. That's not possible. Okay, so this is a problem that is evident in science fiction, as defined by Orson Scott Card, who believes that it's impossible within the strictures of the genre itself to actually have gods, angels, prophets, etc. So let's talk about fantasy. How does fantasy do that? And I will talk a little bit about my own books because this is a real problem that I ran across. And it happened in an interesting, in, in an interesting way. When I first started writing, uh, writing the Raven Sun series, in the Song of the Syrian, and yes, there will be some spoilers here for those who haven't read the books. I do apologize. Um, if you don't want to hear any spoilers, pause here. Go and read the first three books of the Song of the Syrian, uh, of Raven Sun. So that's the Song of the Syrian, the Curse of the Raven, and the Heart of the World. And then you'll understand what I'm talking about uh, after 
the caveat. When I first wrote the Song of the Siren, the um, off-screen character of Adonais, uh the god in in the world uh, that I sub-created, to use Tolkien's technical language, was not intended to be anything other than God, than a fantasy version of the one true God who had made a covenant in the Old Testament sense with a nation that was supposed to ensure a kind of um, ideal by which humanity might tr might transcend its own fallen nature, its own tendency to do evil things to each other when there is a lack of that ideal towards which one can strive. And that ideal has to be something that is um, evidence that is seen, even if it never really happens uh, in, in an actual way, at least if there is a striving towards it, at least if there is a covenant, a, a law towards which one um, strives, then there is a greater chance that there will be there will be people who try to live in the way that they're supposed to, in spite of their um, internal predilections, their desire to do things that are only good for themselves. So that's how I wrote it. Except it's very difficult to write about the relationship between a covenantal relationship between God and his chosen people in a fantasy setting and keep it epic fantasy and not allegory and not a direct allegory of what it means to strive towards um, mankind's perfect state. This problem I think I avoided for the most part in the Song of the Seer because we don't really see Adonais in any real sense. He's absent and the book really is about the waning of the covenant and only rem remembrances and reminders about the way that they, the, the glorious past. And in that sense, it's not so much a, a paraphrasing of scripture as it is a, a story about the decline of civilization, which is partially what I wanted to tell. But as I was going further into the story, the problem became very real because the forces of evil, as represented by the raven, become very present and real in the story. They become characters, they become embodied characters, they become agents in the story that move the story forward in very obvious ways. And this is the real problem. How do you then demonstrate a counterbalance? How do you then, without getting hokey, show the power of the good side as embodied by a divine figure? How do you do it without resorting to preachiness? And I didn't know how to answer that question. And the further I got into the heart of the world, book three, the more difficult it became because this is going to be the middle point of a five book series. They're getting to the heart of the matter, heart of the world. And it's unclear to me how the good is going to manifest itself in a way that is going to be compelling from a story sense. And then it dawned on me that I had been writing something without realizing it throughout the first two and now the third book. That my subconscious was providing an answer to that question, but my conscious mind hadn't caught up to it yet. So this is what happened. I realized that the way that you demonstrate the presence, the reality of the good in story form is that you really, really lean in to its op to the portrayal of its opposite. So that's when that happened, I realized that Adonais was actually not God. And perhaps I will not 
go the complete spoiler route for those of you who, who uh, are still listening. But those of you who've read the books know what happened. And it really helped me to write the story that way so that when a form of the divine shows up in book five, it's not at all, as far as I can tell, and as far as my reviewers have told me, it's not at all a preachy moment, but it is a fulfillment um, of a kind of promise that was given in book three by the revelation of the strength of the of the evil character. Yeah. So that's how it happened in my series. And the when I re, when I was thinking about this, as I was thinking about the, the question and the problem of how do you talk about the transcendent in fiction, as I do a lot, <laughs> I realized that some of the best examples of this are actually now found not in traditional fantasy media. I would have expected like Star Wars in 1977, was able to talk about a kind of diluted, watered-down version of the good versus evil absolute story, I, w- I would have expected Obi-Wan Kenobi, the the Disney Plus show, to lean into that. Because it's a wonderful setup. The setup is great in the sense that here we have an opportunity for a true redemption arc for somebody who has lost hope in the ideals of a society that was built to uphold something virtuous. This is what I love about the Clone Wars as a series. Yes, the cartoon series. And I think I'm going to do a longer series on it um, for for this podcast. Because Star Wars, as you know, is not really sci-fi. It's space fantasy. So it really does fit into the into the genre. And it's it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful um story because it really shows effectively how the best intentions of those who try to be virtuous can sometimes be twisted against them if they are not careful and it's absolutely natural for obi-wan kenobi at the beginning of the series to be a completely demoralized person somebody who has no uh, trust in the ideals of what it means to be a jedi but we have to get to the point if we want to tell his story of course we have to get to the point where he is the wise Gandalf figure who trains Luke and who at that point is completely uh, sure about himself as a wielder of the Jedi vision, as, as somebody embodying it, because he passes it on to Luke and he makes Luke the next generation of it. That would make a great story. Plumbing the depths of despair at losing the ideal of virtue and then having an experience, an adventure story, a hero's journey, oh dear, that would then reveal to you that you have to go through the dark night of the soul to be able to then come to a catastrophe that restores your position in the universe as hero. And it involves a return to where you left from. And with that return, you bring a transformation into the world. You become a bearer of the transformation that you called down from the wildness, from the divine, from the transcendent. Now, I've only watched two episodes of three now of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I can't watch any further. (laughs) I might force myself to do it, uh, but the reason is simple. It's that for some reason, and I think the reason is actually that 
the writing pool, the writing talent in Hollywood is severely depleted right now because of some political reasons. And uh, I will include in the show notes a very interesting um, podcast on this from Barry Weiss. But I'm not going to talk about it here because it's explicitly political. But I think that might be one of the reasons why so much of the content that we're seeing on the streaming uh, streaming networks right now isn't, isn't very good. And, and it's because there is this inability to really lean into the traditional story of transformation that is what fantasy is known for. So instead we get, we have a really stupid Kenobi who can do nothing except kvetch and whine about and just basically be a loser over and over and over again while continually doing stupid things. And it's very disappointing, and especially when... Unfortunately, it seems like the main character isn't even Kenobi. It, it's the fifth sister. Um, in which case, you should have called the show the fifth sister. I mean, whatever. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lost opportunity to really take the magic of the Clone Wars and allow Obi-Wan Kenobi a, a, a wonderful, heart-rending, deeply personal experience of having to go through the dark night of the soul to then have an experience of that transcendence that is all is what fantasy is all about and is what i'm talking about today it's not doesn't seem to be happening episode six hasn't happened yet maybe there'll be um a real shift and and they'll redeem him in some way and by the end we'll see maybe some of you will watch it for me and tell me if i'm right or wrong so that i don't have to waste so many hours of my life which could be uh pleasantly and usefully employed doing other things i don't know in any case uh the traditional way of telling stories, the traditional storytelling forms, the traditional fantasy settings as they are presented to us now in this particular cultural moment are not doing the job. So what is? I was absolutely flabbergasted by watching the first four episodes. Now, I'm only four episodes in, but the first four episodes I've watched of Raised by Wolves on HBO Max is absolutely blowing my mind. Now, on the surface of it, this should be something that I should hate. <laughs> because the look at the premise. The premise is about a an anti-utopia being built by androids as a haven for atheists. It's quite they're quite open about it. This that's the setup of the story. There's a bunch of embryos that are artificially um, gestated. How? I don't know. It's not very well described, uh, not very well demonstrated in the show itself. It's kind of icky and awful. Uh, as such things are in Ridley Scott's um, sci-fi universes. But anyway, there are these children that are raised by two androids, mother and father, who are very much an Adam and Eve figure, supposed to be very much an Adam and Eve figure. And the children uh, are taken to a place that is about as anti-Garden um, of Eden as you can imagine. Nothing grows there except succulents. And even these grow there barely. It's the it's a very harsh conditions. There's no living, um, there are, there's no, so there doesn't seem to be any animal life at all, at least initially. And the animal life that does appear later on is predatory. It's the exact opposite of, of Eden. And in this place, we're supposed to believe that uh, a haven for atheists is going to be formed. Now, like I said, on the surface, this, <laughs> as I was reading the premise, I'm like, I'm never going to, I'm not going to watch this. This is exactly the kind of thing that I hate. But some people that I trust told me, no, 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 watch it. And I realize now why. Because this is an anti-parable of 
what it means to to be human with reference to the transcendent, with reference to the divine. It is very much a secular tale. My sense is that the that the creators are very much on the side of the atheists. I could be wrong. I haven't gotten very far in, but their depiction of the of the militaristic religion in this universe, which is called Mithraism for some reason, that doesn't seem to have anything to do with Mithra at all or Mithraic cults uh, of the actual historical Earth past. It's just an, a very dumbed down um, replacement for militant Christianity of the of the um, crusades kind. It seems like the creators are very much on the side of the androids. Except what happens in this supposed paradise for atheists? Nothing goes right. All the children die except one. It's clearly a chosen one figure, which is, by the way, a fantasy trope. Very interesting. The mother and father figure the father figure is very interesting. Uh, he is subordinate to the mother. Now, this is not surprising. If you're going to do an anti-garden, anti-Genesis uh, story, you have to have the dominating partner be the mother. That would be natural because in the traditional scripture, the male dominates over the woman, especially in the Old Testament narratives. Adam dominates Eve. Here's the exact opposite. Like I said already, this is this place is not a paradise in any real sense. It's not a garden. It's the opposite of a garden. Conflict uh, is endemic to it. Predation is there. Everything is about um, violence and avoiding violence. It's not about creating a utopia. It's about... They claim it is about creating utopia, but everything about the story is about violence. It's about the horrible violence of human ideologies when pitted against each other. So what actually ends up happening? Through the first four episodes, everything in the in the storytelling instincts of Ridley Scott and his collaborators suggests to the viewer that this version of a potential paradise for atheists is doomed from the start. It, in that it cannot survive at all, ever. Why? These This is really amazing and really interesting. It shows the effects of the dominating mother figure and how the dominating mother archetype is actually a devouring mother, is actually one that kills. And of course, the the wild mother will kill because she must kill to preserve her young. But how does the mother, the wild mother, know when she must be a nurturer and when she must and when she must be a protector. She can't. She can't tell the difference. It's fascinating. And it just shows you the pitfalls of the of a therapeutic first kind of mindset. And it could be an allegory for the therapeutic state. It's it's very interesting. I'm not suggesting that the that the storytellers necessarily mean that. But as you're watching it, you can't help but think, yes, when the dominating force in a relationship is a motherly force, it can be much more frightening than a masculine force. Because a masculine, a dominating masculine is all about power. But it's very open about its dumb, its, its uh, desire for power. It doesn't pretend to be anything else. But the dominating feminine, especially as it's, as it's shown in this story, is a devouring feminine and it is really scary. As we find out that actually this mother figure is a repurposed 
this isn't much this isn't too much of a spoiler but she's a repurposed killing machine and just the fact that they made the repurposed killing machine the eve character is so telling about these stories about these storytellers instincts and it's not surprising to me at all that there is that they allow for the child of this perfect atheist um conclave to have a natural desire to pray a natural desire for the transcendent a natural desire for that other view now of course it's set up as a kind of revolt against the mother and i don't know how they're going to i don't know if they'll if they'll ever be able to, to finish this story unfortunately the series has been canceled um in spite of the fact that it that it was actually quite popular on on uh, on HBO's streaming service, so who knows? Maybe it'll get it'll get uh, an expanse type um, update on a different channel on a different uh, service. But in the meantime, from what I've been able to see, this is what has been really striking to me: is that this secular parable about the the possibility of of the existence of an atheist paradise is doing more to me as a consumer of story is doing more to me to show the reality of the transcendent in the re- in actual life than star wars than those properties that traditionally in the past in their best form were able to do i don't know what's going on and i've talked about this a little more in my in my uh, green knight and secular apocalypses episode if you haven't heard that one do listen to it but for whatever reason whether it's I actually don't know what it is, and I'd I'd love to hear your opinions on it. But it's the it's the anti-Christian secular storytellers that are doing the best job at right now in giving us stories that are honest and compelling about the questions of man's encounter with the unknown, with the divine, with the transcendent. I will warn you, since we just finished the series on uh, violence and fantasy media that um, raised by wolves is very dark it's very violent and it's uh, it's it's quite i mean i had to stop after episode four because the darkness is unrelenting it's not pleasant viewing but it's certainly cerebral and it's certainly compelling so we'll see how how it goes for the rest of the series as i finish it i think i'll have more to say about it but um it just really struck me and i wanted to share that because I've often talked about uh, fantasy's purpose as the storytelling form that delves into that wildness on the edge, that delves into man's encounter with the unknown. And science fiction is has, has always traditionally been less about that and more about things like the what-ifs of human capability, but in a purely materialist form. And now, science fiction seems to be doing something that fantasy has traditionally been doing. Secular science fiction, too, which is really fascinating. So that's what I wanted to to talk about today. And uh, stay tuned for further thoughts on the Homecoming series as I finish book five, and possibly more thoughts on uh, Raised by Wolves as I go into the end of season one and season two. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio 
paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.